Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, ElixirConf US 2021 has been announced, and it will be held in Austin, Texas. The dates are October 12th and the 13th. So there's a physical gathering that's going to happen, but there's also going to be an online component. So that'll be really great, especially if you're outside the US and you can't necessarily find the time to travel and make all those arrangements because that can be expensive too. So I'm curious for you guys, I don't know if you have planned ahead so far as to know about this ElixirConf, but just in general, are you guys planning on going to any conferences this year, physical conferences? I would love to see humans again. (laughs) That sounds great. I don't have plans to attend any, but this one looks fun. I'd like to look into it and see if I can make it and see some people. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, I feel like, yeah, I'm, I'm fully vaxxed. I think, I think a lot of folks out there are probably at that point too. Yeah, I don't know. That's, that's a good question. That's, that's a lot of folks, but I have full confidence in myself, you know, and I, and I, I want to believe that, you know, the rest of our community has that same kind of respect for other folks to be vaxxed before they, they go out into big public events like that. Um, so given that, yeah, I think I'd, I'd like to go. Unfortunately, this year I won't be able to though. So maybe online this year and in person next year. I've also kind of just been kind of craving that gathering of, you know, the like-minded people who care about Elixir and what's going on in this space and that are excited about it. And I love being able to find that at conferences. So I do want to attend some conferences this year. I haven't yet committed to any particular ones. There was a new Elixir case study added. This is how Mozilla uses Phoenix to create an open source virtual social space they call hubs. You can create rooms and you can invite people to it. Yeah, it looks kind of cool. Have you guys tried it out? I did. I tried this out with some friends just to see if this could work as a meetup, kind of a virtual meetup thing. Because like, you know, with Zoom, you get 40 people in a room and only one person can ever talk because they're just, they dominate that whole space. And so I wanted to see how well this would work. And one of the things I thought was really cool is it does have spatial audio. So if you have little clusters of people, you know, the further two people, the avatars are away in this social environment the further their audio sounds away. It's like quieter. So it's using WebRTC for the audio. And you can actually do a little screen sharing. The downside is this doesn't work really for screen sharing, like having a single presenter. Because like when I share my little screen, it's like just in front of me. So only the people who are right around me, like that little avatar, (laughs) can see my screen. So it's like it's just not really set up for that. It seems like a really cool project. It's open source. So if you want to check out how they built it, that'd be something fun to look at. So they need like a theater mode so you can put up a huge screen in the corner of the room and people can see it from all around. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, honestly, we have some more interesting stuff to talk about with this. And so I think this topic will come up again in the future. They have a link to the open source you know, code there. It's called Reticulum. And it's pretty interesting to peek around in it. I haven't used the platform myself, but boy, they have a lot of code in there. Um, so lots of interesting things to, to check out. Next up, Zig, the language that some people enjoy using with Elixir because you can kind of embed it directly into your Elixir code and it compiles using the Zigler library, it compiles into NIFS. Well, they saw an update recently. So this is just kind of Elixir adjacent, right? They have a new release where Mac OS users will be able to get support for the Apple Silicon without needing to fall back to the system linker. So it's not fully featured yet, but it can already cross-compile C and C++ and Zig to Apple Silicon. So if you are interested in Zig and Zigler and NIFS, 
and you're on the Mac platform, that's something to be aware of. Cool. In the machine learning space, there's a new Axon feature that's called Training Callbacks. And training callbacks allow you to plug into different points in the training loop. Uh, so this is helpful for monitoring training progress or checkpointing models and and probably more. Uh, check out a link to the tweet. And our news wouldn't be complete with some live book news, right? Sounds like they're making great progress. And quickly, they recently added support for inputs. It's a great way to pass user values into your Elixir code. The PR, which we'll link in the show notes, explains how to work with it. The developer... Behind the feature explains that since Markdown doesn't support the encoding of input values, they're using JSON comments to serialize and persist values in the Markdown file. We talked with Jonathan about Livebook in episode 46, if you want to go deeper on that topic. Also related to Livebook, there's a notebook example showing a scatterplot displaying beam statistics like reductions and memory for processes. It just seemed really cool because this is an interactive graphic that can be clicked and linked to the Phoenix Live dashboard. So we have a link to a GIF where you can see that animated and the project where it's being used. I'm just kind of amazed at how many different uses and applications people are finding for Livebook. I just think it's it's really fun. Cool. Yeah. So the idea is like you're in Livebook, you, you spawn up a bunch of uh, processes or something. In Livebook, you can see the graph of all your processes. <laughs> this isn't Phoenix Live dashboard, you know, like this is Livebook. This is like a homegrown Grafana that this is turning into now, like <laughs> live metrics. How, how many more ways can Livebook be, be abused? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think we're going to discover that soon. All right. Hey, do you want to ditch Webpack? Are you interested in ditching Webpack? Well, maybe. Maybe there's ways. Of course, you can do that uh, today, right? But Phoenix generates with Webpack out of the box. It's, it's the de facto you know, way of, of setting up your asset pipeline in Phoenix. But finding guides or examples on how to do something a little bit, I don't know, simpler or alternative stacks uh, on the node side can be a little bit difficult sometimes. So thankfully, Mitchell Hanberg has got a couple of posts that we're going to talk about. The first one being how he handles static assets in his Phoenix apps. That's just an example of how he does it. I thought that was interesting because, yeah, because Webpack is usually the choice uh, and, and he ditches it. He goes for ES build uh, and for CSS stuff, he goes for post CSS CLI and uh, for handling assets uh, like static assets like uh, images and such he he just copies them over using uh, cpx so it's essentially what webpack is doing right except webpack isn't the orchestrator now it's uh, three different things that would watch you got es build to watch for javascript post css cli to watch for css stuff and then cpx for all the other file assets pretty nice way to break it down maybe if you want to learn a little bit how that asset pipeline works that's a good article to check out also, from Mitch as well, uh, there's there's a, another article. He apparently is a NeoVim user, just like me. You, you may have heard in the in, in the news rounds uh, a week or two ago. You know, I had talked about some new features coming up in NeoVim. NeoVim is a is a code editor. You know, c- console based uh, has a, a native language server integration coming in. Lua is going in there. There's just a lot of really cool things that are just, that's happening in NeoVim. So Mitchell is also a user and has a great blog post up on how to take advantage of all those features in NeoVim, including Elixir Language Server. NeoVim 0.5 is the big, you know, landmark release. It hasn't actually released yet. So keep that in mind um, as you're looking into those, uh, into that article. Uh, And really any NeoVim 0.5 article for that matter, that stuff is still not released. You're downloading that from master, right? And compiling that stuff. So you know the usual warnings that uh, come with that. Uh, Anyway, that's it for the news today. 
Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Nathan Long. Nathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me here. So Nathan, you and I talked some time ago, and that was about Phoenix Frenzy and some of the cool stuff you were doing there. But today, I was happy to have you come back because recently we were talking about IO lists on one of previous episodes, and you kind of reached out and said, hey, you know, IO lists are even cooler than that. And so I was happy to have you come on so we can kind of dig in a little deeper and understand this aspect of Elixir where, you know, we as users, we benefit from it. We don't necessarily have to understand it like that Phoenix is using this. But sometimes when you peel back the hood, you can learn a lot. So I'm happy that you could come and kind of share some of that insight. But before we jump into that, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about yourself. Like where do you live and what kind of work are you doing? I live in Athens, Georgia, which is close to where I grew up. It's a nice place to live. I don't know that there's anything exciting for visiting it, but it's, it's enjoyable to live here. Uh, I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. Right now I'm working on a, a project, which I can't tell details of, but it's basically involves kicking off automated jobs and it performs those and displays and reports on the results and everything has to be like concurrent and the subtasks shouldn't bother other subtasks. So it's a great fit for Elixir. I think it makes the world a better place, which is also nice. And over the course of this project, I've done a lot of Elixir. I've done a little bit of DevOps where I feel kind of like a fish out of water. And uh, we're working on a GraphQL API now, which is pretty fun. So I've worked on other stuff like data ingestion, pipelines, at e-commerce site, you know, different things at Dockyard. Well, Nathan, I am excited to kind of jump in on this. So it's in episode 44. We talked with Sasha Fonseca about Elixir data types. IO lists was a big feature kind of of that and it was, it was an interesting topic. And I wanted to go a little deeper on that and kind of understand how they are used in Elixir and Phoenix, because you previously wrote a great blog post about IO lists in Phoenix. And I'd love to kind of dig into that some more here. So maybe you can kind of first start us off with what is an IO list and kind of where does that fit into the Elixir ecosystem of types? I think even before jumping to the, into that, it's good to talk a little bit about what problem this solves for us, like what issue you may have in other stacks. So if you're trying to render a web page, you probably have some kind of a template and like dynamic values that you stick in. Like maybe you're listing users and you loop through and put each user's name in or something like that. And conceptually, that's a bunch of different separate chunks of text. Like you've got opening LI tags maybe, and then you've got the dynamic name you stick in and then the closing LI tag or something like that. What a lot of web frameworks will do is just jam all that stuff together into one giant string before sending it back to the client. It takes some work to build that string. You have to allocate the memory for it, and then you have to garbage collect it later. And that might not seem like a really big deal, but it can be depending on how big that gets. I've seen, I don't know, when I was working in Rails, I actually at one point had to try to break a Rails page into fewer partials to try to speed up view rendering. I remember there was a really famous GitHub issue that got a lot of hits that you just couldn't load the page anymore because it was too slow to build the view. So so that that can be an issue. And IOList lets us sidestep all that stuff. So IOLists aren't really that special in themselves. They're, there's really nothing magical about them. They're just a list of... There's a little more to it, but they can be just a list of strings. But what is special is, is how we can build them and then how they get written to a device. So the simplest example of an IOList would just be like, open list, the string, hello, close list. That's it. That's an IOList. It's just a list of binaries, or it can have integers between 0 and 255, which is a single byte of data, or it can have a mixture of the two. Or it can have IO lists in it. So you can nest them as deeply as you want. So you could have a list with a list with a list with a list, you know, with strings as deeply nested as you want. So if you think about if you have the string hello, you could write that in IO list as a list with the string hello or a list with the letter H as a string and then the letter E as a string on and on. That's the same. They would be written to the output the same way. 
Or you could have like start a new list, put the string H, start another new list, put the string E, start another new list, put the string L all the way down, and then write that whole thing. And it's just going to depth first walk that and write each thing to the device. It's going to come out exactly the same as if you wrote it as a single string. So that's what IO lists are and how they get handled. And when you say device, that can be a like a file. But like in this case, in Phoenix, when we're thinking about that, that's like to a web connection, right? Like a TCP IO out. Is that what you were talking about? Yeah, yeah. It could be standard out, standard error, could be a file, could be a socket, a TCP socket, which is, which is what's happening when you're using, when you're sending back a web response in Phoenix, it's handing that IO list off to Cowboy, which is writing that to the socket. And that's how it gets sent out. There's nothing really special about IO lists themselves. You can just make one in IEX. There's nothing special about the strings in them. They're just strings that are that are handled the same way as other strings. They could be heap allocated on that single process. They could be ref C binaries. Nothing fancy there. It's it's just a list with those strings in it. They're not treated differently from anything else. Oh, and by the way, if you're not sure if something is an IO list, you can call colon Erlang dot IO list to binary on it. And if that works, it's an IO list. <laughs> <laughs> so Elixir has EEX, the engine built into it, uh, because Elixir itself uses it. But Phoenix is leveraging that as its default, you know, template rendering engine. So the so that EEX engine is the one that's handling all this IO list stuff that we're talking about for Phoenix to Cowboy and all that. I wasn't sure though what triggers Cowboy to start sending it. My impression was that you still build this template maybe in memory, but it, it's efficient more efficient in memory because it's smaller chunks of strings, but it doesn't actually send it until it's until it's complete. And then that's where it goes down the wire. And, it, and, it, and maybe Cowboy is efficient at that point. Because I do know that I can tell Plug to send chunked bits to it. And maybe that has like separate IO lists. So I know that there's like, there's a difference there. And I'm not sure if Cowboy is smarter than me, you know, <laughs> like when the IOLIS is this long or this big, you know, go ahead and start sending it uh, in chunked bits to the people's browsers or, you know, by default, it's just, you know, builds it all up in memory. And then once the connection is, is marked as done and ready to send back, then that's when it actually goes down the pipe to the users. I'm not super sure. I haven't looked in a while at how chunked responses work. But the case that I'm thinking of is when you have a template in Phoenix, like you said, that's EX, and EX gets compiled. So Phoenix compiles that template to be a, just a function on your view module. Mm -hmm. So you can call that function straight from IEX if you want to, and you'll see that you get back some kind of nested list structure from it. So in the cases where you're not doing a chunk response, where you're just saying, render this view, hand me back the, the data, then you're handing that to Cowboy and it's sending it. The two things that are special about IOLIS, one is that you can build them really efficiently. So if you know how, how lists work in Elixir and Erlang, they're linked lists. So if you have a, a list like A, B, and you want to add C to the beginning of it, that's fine. You just C links to A and you're done. But if you want to add C to the end of it, you have to modify B to point to C. But that means you have to modify A to point to a new B, which points to C. When you append to a list, you have to copy the entire list and walk the entire list. And then you have garbage collection to throw away the old list and everything. So, But because IOLIST can be nested, you can do this whole other sidestep thing where you take the original list and you make it the first item in a new list. And the second item is the thing you want to stick on the end. So you have a list with an inner list and then a new item at the end. And you can do that as many times as you want. So you can just keep appending stuff by wrapping it in a new list. And that's the kind of trick that is being done in EX when your template compiles. Let's say you have a nested for loop or something. It's just appending, appending, appending stuff, and it comes out with this really deeply nested list, but that's just fine because of the second trick that works with higher lists. <laughs>
which is how they're written. You know, all, all of the I.O. functions in Erlang uh, know how to write that to a file or a socket, just walking it depth first, writing each chunk as if it were all flat. And so the combination of those things means that we can build that up really quickly and we can write that really efficiently. So we talked about like in, in some frameworks, you build up this whole string in memory, which is the entire template. But in Elixir or Erlang, if you're using this, this kind of IOLIS thing, the only place that the complete response is assembled is in the socket or in the file. Mm-hmm. It just never gets built in memory. It's, I, think that, I just think that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, and some of that is because of the magic of the binary heap, right? Like you can have these large blobs of strings that don't have to get copied in order to be streamed out over that socket, right? Yes. We talk about like heap allocated binary, short binaries that are in a single process. When that process dies, they just die, which is what is going to happen most of the time with a Phoenix application. A single new process will be spawned for that particular request. And then when it dies, the garbage collection is, it just burns the house down, right? Everything that's in that process goes away. In the case of like a template that's been compiled, it's even cooler because all of the static parts of your template, like the opening tags and whatever, all the tags, all of that stuff's being compiled into a function. So those are strings that are just part of the, the beam code. I'm a little fuzzy on exactly where all that stuff lives once the VM is running. But what I have seen when I looked into this stuff, I did like dtrace and was watching where when the IO list get written to the socket, it's using a system call called write v, which is like write these five or 10 or however many memory addresses to the socket. And what you see is the static parts of the template are coming from the same memory location, request after request after request. So it's not even having to, it's like there's no, <laughs> there's no copies of those. And I don't know if that enables any kind of caching at lower levels or whatever. That would be cool. But the fact that that's being written from the same place over and over, just I just think that's awesome. So like all the non-dynamic stuff is just taking up a very small fixed amount of memory. It's not being copied. Every single time a request comes in, it's not being copied. So your template is just as big as your template is. It doesn't multiply infinitely like it might otherwise. Hmm. Yeah, I think we talked about this in a previous episode, and I and I I had mentioned like I I wasn't sure how it actually worked, but this is clarifying how it actually works. There's the static parts of the page; they don't change; they're compiled, and then the EEX marks uh, dynamic parts of it that gets executed dynamically, obviously, and then uh, sent down the socket. And uh, I, I presume LiveView works in a similar fashion, but mm, optimized for for WebSocket communication and stateful uh, connections in in that sense. So maybe big concept. It's it's largely the same, different in some details. Yeah, I asked Chris if there was any major differences in how LiveView works. And he says not really. <laughs> he didn't give me a lot of details there, but he said there's not really anything new there. I think it's it's very similar. One thing that I think is conceptually cool about this is just the way that the caching. If you think of this as like a view cache, if you've maybe used other web frameworks where you have to use something like Russian doll caching in Rails or something, like you want to cache this part of the page, but then you have to decide when the cache is going to be invalidated and you have to decide how to store that cache and memory and, and all this sort of stuff. It becomes it can become pretty complicated, but conceptually what the Phoenix template is, is you you cache all of the static parts always, like the opening tags and whatever. They're always cached. And you never cache the dynamic parts. And then the cache is invalidated when you change the template. And that's it. <laughs> um, so it's, it's really like, it's, it's as good as it could possibly be. One difference there is when you're caching something like in Rails, when you're caching the Russian doll nested kind of stuff, you're also caching the values you interpolated. Mm-hmm. With the Phoenix approach, that's not the case. You, you still have to get those fresh from the database. But if that becomes your bottleneck, which it's probably not, you can use something else to cache the data from the database. You know, you can have a materialized view or an ETS table or something else to make that cheap. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I remember doing that with Rails. You know, having to say, well, if the user objects last updated, you know, you have to set the criteria for when this is becomes invalidated, and it's always having to evaluate that when it's returning from the cache or from the live thing. And if you get that wrong, then you're like getting data that's not getting updated, and it becomes a, a tedious, bug-prone situation. I do love that you have things like this built into Phoenix, where Phoenix takes total advantage of this. And I don't actually, as a user of it, like when I came and started learning Elixir, started learning Phoenix, I think I learned about IOLists that they existed just because I was reading the Phoenix book. But I didn't have to actually understand what it was doing to get the benefits of it. That's not the case with the Rails Russian doll caching situation, right? Like I have to be aware of that. I have to think about it. That's what I think is so powerful about this. I think there's still a lot of value in understanding what it is so that we can see other opportunities where it might benefit us. Yeah. And, and this this whole topic, I don't think that for most of us, there's a whole lot of practical value in knowing about IOLIS. Like you said, it's just something you benefit from just by using something like Phoenix or EX. If you do happen to be trying to really optimize some process of writing to a socket or to a file, then I think the advice here would be use a list of strings instead of trying to concatenate them up. There's no point in concatenating them because at best, it's going to be written the same way. Uh, and at worst, you're losing some efficiency. Most of us, though, aren't going to care about this very often. Uh, it's just interesting how it works and, and fun to appreciate. Yeah, I will say this did come up when I was working on a custom logger. You know, when you look at the Elixir logger and I needed to do something custom because I needed some uh, special formatted JSON coming out for our the log consumer. When you look at the logger there, it is actually writing out in IO lists. And like that totally makes sense, you know, because you're just streaming it out and you want to be able to just not have to like be creating large binaries or anything like that. It did come up in other places. So it is still something I think that we have a benefit of understanding. Yeah. So I keep hearing IO list and list. Is there a difference between, are they two different data structures? Are they the same? Why do we say IO list sometimes and list? Can we get some clarification in case somebody doesn't understand the differences here? All IO lists are lists, but not all lists are IO lists. For example, if you have a list that contains a map, that's not an IO list. It's not a valid IO list. An IO list is one that conforms to those specific rules of it can contain binaries, it can contain numbers between 0 and 255, and it contain other IO lists. And that's it. I have a blog post that I wrote just recently that gets into a little bit more detail. There's a little bit of nuance with like IO lists can also be improper lists where the tail isn't a list but a binary. And that just means that you have to allocate fewer lists as you build up this structure. But the basic idea is just it's a subset of lists that have certain rule that adhere to certain rules. And also all of the stuff about how Phoenix builds up its output using the templates is uh, shown with like the actual code that the template compiles to. You can see that in, in my older blog post, which is Elixir and IOList Part 2 lists in Phoenix. IOList in Phoenix. Yeah, I remember seeing that uh, situation of like an improper list and just like, what the heck is that? How can you have an improper list? Is it broken? You know, <laughs> so like, so you're describing that as being a situation where, could you clarify again what an improper list is and, and when we might run into that? Yeah. So normally a list is one where the head is, it's a two item thing. The head is some piece of data, like a string or whatever. And then the tail is another list. And when you get all the way down to the end of the list, the tail is an empty list. But an improper list, the tail is something that's not a list. That means... Some functions will break if you pass them an improper list. That's why it's called improper. But IO lists can be improper. And it the fact that they can be improper 
means that you don't have to allocate as many lists when you're building them up, if that makes any sense. And so it seems like lists are a first class citizen in Elixir. There are it's a data structure that a lot of people use. There's the list module. IO lists, on the other hand, are they as first class? Are there modules to help you work with them, or is it more just Erlang? Yeah, there's no special modules for IO lists. And I definitely encourage you to check out my blog post if you want more nitty gritty details because there's all these overlapping terms. There's like IO lists and IO data and car lists and car data. And like it can become pretty confusing. Lists are sort of the first class data type. And then all of these other things are just lists that have specially defined rules about what kind of content can go in them. So there's no special modules for working with them. It's just what do you put in your list, essentially. I think that clears it up. Clears mud for me. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, that actually, it actually makes sense. Um, and I was, I was kind of wondering what the subtle differences were there. So I think that makes sense. But I'll definitely give your article a read. In case I ever come across Mark's logger situation or, you know, it's good to know how these things are working internally anyways. So, Well, Nathan, while we've got you here, I want to jump into another topic that we kind of touched on just briefly there. You talked about materialized views as one of those ways that we can maybe optimize getting data out in like a caching layer almost. But for you, dear listener, if you're interested in kind of digging into some of those IO list things that we just covered... And Nathan spent a lot of time writing up and documenting. Check out the show notes where there's a link to multiple blog posts where he's covering these in more detail. And thank you, Nathan, for kind of helping to cover and understand some of these a little better. So I appreciate that. I love it when we can take a, a deeper dive on things. But now, while we've got you, I want to talk about some of the things that we were talking about with Postgres. Before the show, we had a little discussion that was starting around the way different communities deal with their databases. For instance, a, a Rails project, when you start it up, it starts with an SQLite database. It's capable, but it's pretty bare bones and you know not really meant for like high-scale stuff. But it's really easy to get started working with. But the Phoenix community has really said, you know, Postgres is the thing we want to do by default. With that, you know, there's just some decisions and choices. And and so David, do you want to kind of talk about some of those things that you were saying about maybe the perceptions about how we think about our databases? Yeah, some backstory then, you know, it's just that I think I have a typical new developer upbringing, right? My first language was Rails. And so uh, some of the things that I was learning was object oriented programming, along with the magic methods of, you know, that Rails brings in from all these different places. And you know, one of those big concepts that you have to learn as you're becoming a, a new de a new dev is the, the concept of migrations and and databases and and that kind of stuff. So uh, you go into it, you create your table, you create your columns and their types, and that's that's generally it. And and, and I remember the guidance of like blog posts and the Rails guides and all that kind of stuff. They would, they would basically say that if you had constraints on your data, you'd put it into your model. So your user model, for example, user.rb, and you would have like validates email and some regex in there, which that still makes sense, or validates length or, you know, presence or uniqueness, all that kind of stuff. All that would be in the, in the app side. When I started moving over to Elixir and Ecto, I didn't see that same kind of guidance. Uh, I saw more, more guidance along, along the lines of well, Postgres can do these things for you. And just be clear, like Postgres isn't, it, yes, it's the default choice, but we also have MySQL now that has a lot of these same kind of constraints. But the attitude is, you know, it's the same. 
Postgres has those constraints. Put your your constraints in in Postgres. Put your your foreign types need to be in in the Postgres you know part of, of of your app, not your app side of your of your app. Your uniqueness constraints, all that kind of stuff. Length constraints, even you know all that kind of stuff. The validations generally, if you can put them into Postgres, you should do that. And so I, I thought that was interesting um, because, you know, the, the general attitude was like your database is responsible for the data integrity, uh, not so much your your application. Whereas in other communities, and in my case, yeah, I'm going to generalize a little bit, but in my case, it was the Rails community. They, they had it, you know, the other way around. Your app is responsible for your data integrity. So I thought that was an interesting contrast. And it was a, another bit of learning curve for me was just understanding a little bit more about my database that I was using. And, and I loved it. Understanding your tools, you know, is always important. And, you know, with Active Record and uh, th- that, that, that community, I was able to get so far along without understanding the underlying tool with, with Postgres, which is both a, a blessing and maybe, you know, a hindrance, you know, as you're, as you're trying to develop yourself and your core skills. With Ecto, that was much more upfront. <laughs> you, you need to know about these constraints here. And you could still do some of that app validation, app side validation. Um, but generally, it's yeah, much more encouraged to, uh, uh, to do it in, in the database. For example, one of, one of the validations in Ecto is unsafe, unique you know, check or something like that. So it's the fact that it has unsafe in front of it. Like, oh, I need to ask myself a question here. What, what, what's so unsafe here? <laughs> anyway, it was, it was really interesting. So I'm curious... There's a lot of tools about Postgres. So I'm curious, Nathan, you know, what, what are some of the tips and tricks, you know, that you have with, with Postgres, maybe some constraints or some other tools underutilized, maybe tools, uh, or, or other tips to kind of flatten data, you know, in, uh, in Postgres. So it's easier to, to work with on the app side. I also have a Rails background, but before I was doing Rails, I was doing PHP. And back in those days, it was before there was really at least I didn't use a framework. I, don't, I didn't see a lot of people using frameworks. So it was very much like write the SQL string to do the thing you want to do. And that's kind of how I learned about the database. Yeah. And I did see in, in the Rails community, initially at least, there was a very much a, the database is just a dumb storage. All databases are interchangeable to us. We don't want to lean on them for anything kind of approach. That was mm-hmm. probably reacting against some approaches where the DBA is in charge of the database and the DBA has all these complicated stored procedures and you can't, those aren't versioned in your code. And I think it was a reaction against that kind of stuff. And taking that approach where they, they treated the database as kind of dumb, they didn't lean on it for some of the things that we really need to. So you, you gave some examples like this string has to be formatted this way. I think you can reasonably do that in your application code or in the database. The difference would be if anything accesses your database other than your application, it would have to follow that rule. But yeah. it's, a, it's debatable, right? It's, more, it's easier to change an application code. Yeah. But there are some things that only the database can do for you. And uniqueness constraints are a great example of that. The way that an application might do it and, and the way that the Rails unique constraint, or sorry, uniqueness validation is it's basically like if a user's email has to be unique, what I'm going to do is select, <laughs> select from users where email equals the one I want to set in. And if there isn't one, then I'll insert it. But there could be a race condition where just after I selected, someone else put it in. So I think the big picture concept is the database is the only place where you can validate against what other data is in the database. If your constraint is based on what what data is in the database right now, this is or is not valid, then only the database can reliably do that for you. Mm -hmm. So within Ecto, we have the unique constraint thing, which says, look for a violation of the uniqueness constraint, which you're going to (laughs) use, and then turn that into a pretty error message. 
Yeah. I actually was the one who who added the unsafe validate unique to Ecto because, <laughs> oh, cool. because it does it does provide a nice um, user experience thing to be able to say, oh, hey, you have these three errors. You, you're missing your first name mm-hmm. and your email isn't unique and also your other field isn't formatted right. So you don't want to have to do like three round trips to the database to find out all of those things. <laughs> but never use that without backing it up with a unique constraint. Kind of coming from that background of... I started with, you know, writing SQL queries by hand and and enjoying working with the database. Uh, That was my SQL back in those days. I've always kind of liked that aspect of things. And when I finally got into Postgres, I was like, oh, Postgres is amazing. (laughs) I wanted to learn all the things I could about it. You know, you mentioned that whole idea of like the Rails perspective might have been a push against the extreme in the other direction, which I had actually seen. I've seen that uh, when I was working on a .NET project, it was C Sharp. The only way to access data, even selecting it, was through a stored procedure and stored procedures for everything. And it really was super cumbersome. It was terrible. <laughs> I hated that. Thing. <laughs> so yeah, I can totally that... see people wanting to say, no, no, this is bad. We want to go as far away from this as possible. But it's like the whole pendulum swing, right? It's like, well, I might have been too far. Yeah. You know, because I've also worked on those Rails systems where the data constraints weren't in place on the models from the beginning correctly. It's like you learn along the way and then you have this bad data and your code is forever having to deal with this bad data, you know, mm-hmm. or you're having to like revisit and like revisit all the records and try and clean up the data. There is a level of appropriate logic we want to have the database do. We don't necessarily want to put all our business logic in there like stored procedures. So there is, there is value and it, it is an incredible tool. A lot of engineering goes into this thing. Hey, maybe we can use that. That, that reminds me, back before I was a developer, I was an ops person working uh, on a Java program. And I remember we had a pop quiz one time was how, what is the percentage of code? You know, what, what's the code percentage? You know, what, what is our code base written in even? You know, I knew it was Java. So I said Java and they said wrong. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> he said, it's technically 60% of our app is in SQL <laughs> because it's all stored procedures. And I was like, wow, that is, that is a lot of logic in there. So yeah, that was in that was in Java land. And you know, if anyone knows Java, Java can be quite verbose. So it was already that's that's impressive. Sixty percent of the app in SQL. <laughs> so you can definitely go too far in that direction. Um, <laughs> but I would I would love to tell you guys some some things that I've been doing with materialized views and then we can maybe talk about like when not to do it or or how far is too far. Sure, sure. Tell tell me what a view is and then tell me what a materialized view is. A regular view in database terms is basically like a query that's pretending to be a table. So you can say, create view usernames as select first name, last name from users. So users may have lots of columns, but now you have this pretend table called usernames, which only has the first name and the last names. So then if you can say select star from usernames, and you only get back the first name, last name. And underneath the hood, that view is just running the query that you use to define it. It's just giving you this pretty facade on top. Smells like a stored procedure to me. <laughs> Just like an way. alias to a select statement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. So what a materialized view is, is defined the same way. Instead of saying create view, you say create materialized view. But instead of just running the underlying query when you query that pretend table, it's actually got the stuff cached. So it ran the query when you defined it and then stored it on disk. So then when you say select star from usernames, it's already got that data ready to go. Now, in that case, it's not very useful. 
and it gives you a downside that that data is now stale until you call refresh materialized view usernames. And you have to do that every time you want to get that data updated. But it does give you some immediacy. That data is, is all there pre-digested. And the more complicated the underlying query is, the more of that work you've done up front. And you can also add indexes to the... I'm, I'm going to call materialized use mat views just for short. You can add indexes to the mat view. And if it's got an, a complex underlying query, that can be helpful. Yeah, I can see where where the logic or the time to come up with the values, like say maybe you're having a table of what would be like a report. And it maybe there's a lot of work that goes into coming up with some of these values. You could cache that and say, well, this is going to be refreshed every six hours. But you're always getting a pretty recent snapshot of it. Yeah, exactly. Now, a materialized view, obviously, you have, you've done a lot of optimization up front, right? That's a caching layer, basically, right? So there is optimization that's happening there. You just now have hooks to perhaps update that that cache when it needs to. Yeah. So the, the downside of using a, a like a an explicit materialized view is you do have to refresh it explicitly. You have to decide: Am I going to do it every so many minutes or hours, or am I going to do it on a trigger when something else in the database changes, or whatever? You have to come up with some strategy for that. And the other downside of it is that when it refreshes, it has to rerun the entire query and rebuild everything. If that query takes two seconds to run or 10 seconds to run, it's going to take that long to refresh the view, and it's doing a lot of work. But I think that the general use case where this is interesting is when you have something that, that you can think of as like a multi-level query. So imagine that you have like a, an online game, and you want to show top users by lifetime game score. You can think of that as like a two-level query. So the lower level query is get me the game scores, the lifetime game scores for all users. And then the higher level query is select the top 50 from those. For the display, it'd be really nice if you had a table that had the lifetime game scores as a table, right? But in fact, you probably have to go join a bunch of tables about different events that happen and and do this complicated thing to come up with that. And it would really stink to have to do that whole thing for all the history of your entire game every time you load the top 50 users. The map view gives you a way to have the lower level query done. I've got the lifetime scores. Now I can just show you the top 50 and we can paginate or whatever. And that's really, really a simple select and, and very cheap to do. That downside of having to refresh the whole thing is really painful, especially if it's the whole history of your game, because that history is only going to get longer every day. And so that, that refresh process is going to take longer and longer. Just kind of give some like similar situations, something like a bank user's current balance. You don't want to query their entire banking history every time to come up with that balance. Business reports to summarize transactions in a period. I did something with a full text search in Postgres one time, and you and to do full text search, you have to. This was a recipe site. We had to convert the recipes to TS vectors, which is what you can search through. And you don't want to do that every time somebody hits a keystroke to type, you know, they're trying to type in strawberries and find recipes with strawberries <laughs> on them. You know, and you're yeah. trying to like, oh, yeah, IES, strawberries with IES and strawberries with a Y at the end should be treated the same. That's the TS vector magic. <laughs> but you want that done ahead of time. You want all that digestion done ahead of time so you can just search some simple data at, at runtime. I actually do that on the elixirstream.dev uh, site. We, we, yeah, we, we cache those vectors into some searchable column and then we actually query against the searchable column. Which is kind of cool. And there's another thing, you know, another trick. I've created a recursive view. So if you have things that can refer to itself, like a parent tree, the recursive view can build that table up for you and flatten that out for you a little bit better. And, and you know, I don't know, give you the tree, you know, of, of relationships in a, in a column, for example, which is pretty cool. 
Uh, that kind of blows my mind. Do you have a blog post on that? You can, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I probably should, um, maybe, maybe I can write one up there, but I've, work I've, on that. I've given a presentation on it before. So I have to convert it from a presentation to uh, to a blog post. <laughs> yes. Views. Incredibly powerful. Love it. Let me get your thoughts on this though. Do you ever feel like it's a smell to create a view? Don't you feel like you're mo- remodeling something that maybe should be a proper model? I would be pretty hesitant to create a plain view because it really is just kind of reshaping the data. And it does feel like maybe that's more the realm of the application code. But because the materialized view kind of thing gives you such big performance benefits, I think it can be worth it. I had a situation recently where we had some application code that was building up a really complex Ecto query with lots of subqueries and joins and stuff. And it seemed fine in development. But then when we tried it on production data, like the page wouldn't load at all. <laughs> and I had to like put in the timeout of infinity on Ecto and, and to get it to load, and it took 45 seconds. So then I, got, I set Postgres to log the queries, and, and I found the giant query that was produced. And I was able to take and kind of reshape that to make it flatter and get it down to a couple of seconds, but it was still pretty slow, you know, too slow for a web request. And then I ended up going with this materialized view kind of situation. Now it's just, it's just totally, totally fast. The page load is immediate. But for this, uh, I've, I've, I'm using a technique that I found on the HashRocket blog, actually, which we should link as well. It's not a materialized view, but it's very much like a materialized view. It's not technically one. But the concept here is, instead of using a materialized view that you declare with a query and say, this is how you make it, this is also how you refresh it, instead, you create a plain table and you manually update each row. So if you're thinking about like the lifetime scores table for players, when one player has a new event, you update their one row in that table. Uh, and mm-hmm. so they get a new lifetime score, but you don't have to recalculate the whole thing, which is great because some players might not be playing anymore. <laughs> some players, their information hasn't changed. You don't want to be recalculating that. So the full thing that I did, I'm, I'm hoping to write this up on the Dockyard blog pretty soon, uh, but, but the, I'm, it's very much like the approach in the HashRocket post. It's trigger-based. So I made a function that says, given a list of user IDs, it's actually a different realm, but let's just pretend it's the, the lifetime game thing. Given a list of user IDs, here's a function in Postgres. Oh, no, we're defining functions in Postgres. <laughs> here's a function in Postgres that knows how to take those user IDs, do the necessary query to calculate their lifetime score, and upsert rows for those users into the lifetime scores table. And then to initially populate that table, I call it with all user IDs. And then I set up a trigger that says, when a new event happens for a user, call this function with their user ID. So it's just continually updating it. And in Ecto, I assume you have a read-only schema against this. So you can't, you, you try to tell yourself, don't write back to this. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, so we, we've been talking about these uh, materialized views. You know, we've got these other tools for maybe creating these triggers or other lazily evaluated tables or something. What are some tools to manage those? Because obviously you have to, to manage them. I doubt that you can always just put it all into Postgres and not have to manage it from, you know, from Ecto, for example. Like, for example, you have to create the materialized view, so there's a migration involved here at least. Coming from the Rails, ro- Rails realm, uh, there's a tool that I know of called Scenic, not to be confused with the Elixir Scenic, but Scenic as in like creates and manages views and triggers updates to views and stuff like that. And, and it has helpers that will uh, be injected into your, your migration files. That was a pretty helpful tool. I'm not aware of anything that happens uh, that manages migrations like that or, or views like that in the Ecto world. So what tips do you have in, in that area? 
really don't have tips there. <laughs> uh, I, in my situation, I've just defined those straight in migrations. But I do think that that's a big step up from the stuff that, that Rails wasn't reacting against, where the DBA manages all this stuff as a completely side, you know, outside the application development process. The fact that you're defining stuff in migrations makes them come with the code you know, the code that relies on them is deployed with the migration that runs all the stuff we care about with migrations. So I think that that's important, but it would be awkward. Like if you needed to modify a materialized view, you'd have to drop it and recreate it. Or if you needed to modify one of these functions that gets uh, run by a trigger, you'd have to drop it and recreate it. It would be awkward and frustrating uh, to have to do that. But there, there can be such a massive performance benefit that I think it's worth considering. I do have some words of caution, though. <laughs> Go ahead. I'd love to hear them. You may have noticed that because we're using triggers, and it's like saying when when a row gets inserted in this table or updated in this table, run this trigger. You know, when a game event happens, update the player's lifetime score with this function. That sounds an awful lot like callbacks, doesn't it? <laughs> and we've probably all been bitten by callbacks. I know I have. I think that one thing that's important to think about here is callbacks can do any any arbitrary thing. If you think about Active record callbacks, it can be like, after a user is created, send an email. And they're like, well, what if I don't want to send an email in some situations? And they can trigger other callbacks, and it can become pretty complex. When you're using triggers the way that I'm talking about here, what we're really doing is we've got the normalized version of the data, and we've got sort of a denormalized copy of the data that we're maintaining for easy querying, and we're just using triggers to keep those things consistent. My colleague Scott Hamilton said, it's just the database keeping the database consistent, which is what the database loves to do, right? So. And using it this way, I think it's fairly safe. But I would say, number one, use triggers sparingly. Use stuff like, like these materials use sparingly. Prove that you have a performance need before you go to this. Uh, you don't want your whole application to be just logic that's all in these views. I would say chain even more sparingly because it may be hard to follow what's happening if if uh, inserting into table A does an, a trigger and then that causes another trigger to fire, that would be hard to follow. Keep that logic as simple as you can. Database logic is harder to debug. And when, when stuff goes wrong, you don't get the same kind of stack traces and error tracking as you get from your application code. Think about the cost at insertion time. So when you run a trigger on inserting into a table, that runs in the same transaction. And if it's slow, it's going to slow down that insert. So is that acceptable? Is it fast enough? If it's not, you can consider doing something out of band. Maybe you insert an Oban job, and then you do some work later on to update that denormalized view of the data or some, some other strategy, which takes it out of the insert process. And then, yeah, like I said, this probably goes without saying, but use migrations. Don't just, don't just log into your database and create these things. Put them in your, in your migrations. You want them versioned with your code. And that way you can be sure that everything is deployed consistently. Yeah, and you can even write uh, unit tests that are validating that this uh, behavior is actually still implemented in your database. And I mean, that's a huge step forward, like having the code somewhere where developers can see it rather than the DBA situation we're talking about. But also, thanks for clarifying that it's in the same transaction, because I was actually wondering, like, does that mean we now have to deal with, like, eventually consistent leaderboards? Or <laughs> So, no, but it's a good point that if it's a slow query, then that might not be good. So, yeah, good tips. And I, I'm pretty sure if that trigger function fails or, or, or you know goes wrong in some way, it's going to abort your transaction. So that's another thing to watch right. out for. You don't want this to be something that can go wrong. I appreciate those tips because you know we have these situations as we're designing systems. If you've been developing for a long time, you kind of may be tempted to say, well, I know at some point this is going to be an issue. So like the whole premature optimization. So I love that you threw in there. It's like, hey, don't do it until you know you need it because so many systems don't need it. 
or if they do, it might not be for like three years down the road when you're starting to deal with lots of historical data. I love that there's that perspective of these are some really powerful things to be aware of for when you need them and maybe some ideas of uh, ways of patterns to recognize when I do need them, right? Like two second long queries to figure out this report thing. Okay, now, now I need to do this. There's a business need for this to happen. Let's see what I can do. And then know that you have these powerful tools built into the database. Yeah. And, and you might not have to jump to something like a map view or one of these hand-rolled map views. Like David was saying, you, know, you may be able to just, like in the case of the recipes where you need the TS vectors, just add a column to it, which is the TS vectorized version of the text and you know, find a way to populate that on insert and it becomes less moving parts to think about. Well, Nathan, I think we're about out of time. Thank you for coming on and talking with us. But if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, maybe continue this discussion somewhere else, where should they go to do that? You can watch for my posts on the Dockyard blog, for one. You can also watch for posts on... And, and some of the things we've been talking about, I posted on my personal site, which is nathanmlong.com slash blog. I've got some posts on IOLIS and a full text search in Postgres and things like that. I'm not really on social media. So if you want to get in touch, otherwise you can email me at hello at nathanmlong.com. Great. And we'll have links to all that in the show notes. Well, Nathan, thank you for coming on and talking to us about IOList, helping us get a little bit of a better mental idea of what's going on under the hood there so we can benefit from it and just kind of appreciate what it is that we're getting when we pick Phoenix and our frameworks. I really enjoyed talking about materialized views and just the appropriate times for denormalizing data and some of the cautions. And I love those little cautions and tips. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.